Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced at the University of Minnesota, featuring conversations with prominent scholars, researchers, and other movers and shakers in the social world. This week, we talk with Joshua Newman and Michael Giardina about their recent book, Sport, Spectacle, and NASCAR Nation, Consumption and the Cultural Politics of Neoliberalism. Our conversation covers topics including the whiteness of stock car racing, religion and rebellion at the racetracks, and the production and consumption of Southern identity. We also discuss the value of researching NASCAR, sports, and other popular culture activities. Thank you again for joining us. Perhaps we could start by each of you saying your name so listeners have a sense of who's speaking. I'm Josh Newman. And I'm Michael Giardina. So one of the things that initially excited me about your book was I just haven't really encountered much research on the subject of NASCAR. I feel like I've seen things on um, the most obscure sports, the smallest uh, subcultures oriented around sports, and a lot of the very popular sports, but NASCAR seems like it's basically been untouched. Um, is, Is this right? Yeah, I think the only other sort of uh, academic book that we might point to was Jim Wright had a book with Duke University Press called Fixin' the Git. I came out, I want to say, around 19, uh, probably about 2002, 2003, somewhere in that range. Okay. Um, And it was very much of a kind of a celebration of NASCAR, which was somewhat strange for a book with Duke University Press. It wasn't very critical. Yeah. Uh, But other than that, in terms of from the academic arena, uh, in terms of a book-length treatment, that would probably be the other one that we would point to. Okay. Uh, and, and I think in, in in some respects, possibly one of the reasons that we were looking to write a book is in some ways as a response to that book. So what else drew you to the topic other than the fact that um, up to that point, no one had published anything critical on NASCAR? Josh might correct me if I'm rewriting history of how we decided to come to this project. But uh, for the listeners out there who who might follow politics quite closely. Remember in 2004, the whole idea of the, the sort of the NASCAR dad as a voting block, sort of mm-hmm. southern, middle class to working class, white males, um, who in, in terms of demogra- demographic analysis is probably just the same sort of bubba vote, the so-called bubba vote that Clinton got in 92 and 96. Um, you know, that was sort of the front and center of the, the Bush re-election campaign. He was going to NASCAR events, uh, uh, Dick Cheney, vice president, was going to events. Don Rumsfeld, secretary of defense, was going to events. And there was a very much of a presence politically. Um, we're talking about national-level politicians on the Republican side at these events. And th- that's sort of the notes that I sketched was that in, in 2006 at a, at a conference in Vancouver, um, I presented a paper, I believe, I have to go back and look at the program, but I believe I presented a paper on sort of NASCAR dads from the, sort of the political side. And Josh had presented a paper, had been talking about uh, – Again, NASCAR more from sort of the Southern uh, whiteness perspective that his some of his dissertation research on on, on Old Miss had had come out of, mm-hmm. and I remember this this moment quite clearly. We were at one of the sort of receptions following some you know business meeting, um, and we had known each other for about five years since then, um, and we kind of got to the point like, all right, you're writing this book on NASCAR, right? And it was kind of like, yeah, and then I had the same like, you're writing this book too. It's like, well. Let's just write this thing together. So were either of you fans of NASCAR before this, or was the uh, increasing political relevance the entryway for both of you? Um, I think uh, I think I probably have a longer history of NASCAR than Mike. Is that true, Mike? <laughs> yeah, I would say that the, the, the sort of the political entry was, was my point. Yeah, and I sort of grew up 
deep in the heart of NASCAR Nation. Uh, we, in my hometown, they have a, a basically a Dale Earnhardt sort of bar, effectively, which is he sort of notoriously would stop in every year on his way to the race in South Carolina and have drinks with the boys and things like that. So um, I'm I'm from East Tennessee, Brist- close to Bristol, Tennessee, where um, obviously uh, one of the major NASCAR races is. So okay. yeah, I have a pretty long-standing. Uh, relationship with NASCAR, uh, one that I've tended to be not that um, happy about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and your book really got me thinking about the cultural isolation of the practice. I mean, growing up in a small rural town in New York, there were a lot of people that I was uh, either friends with or knew of that were big fans of NASCAR. And now, being a grad student, uh, having moved to Minneapolis, if I think about my social circle, I don't think I can think of a single person who would ever admit to even watching NASCAR or ever having been a fan at any point in their life. I was just going to say, I think um, that sort of is kind of what the book was about on some levels, at least some of the historical elements. We're trying to tease out the history of the sport, particularly the history of the sport within the U.S. South. And um, I think what we sort of, the more we looked back at that history and some of the work that's been done there, we kept seeing that what really happened was a a kind of consolidation of an enterprise, uh, one that spanned the whole East Coast really for a long period of time in the early part of the 20th century. But when um, uh, Bill France comes in, he sort of buys up uh, all all the different smaller um, kind of local racing leagues. He repackages the sport as this sort of southern, arguably white, quote unquote, good old boy sport. And um, I don't think he necessarily was trying to do that as much as as sort of organically evolved out of a lot of the major sort of personalities and the more popular locations for the races and those kinds of things. I mean, um, the Daytona race races in Alabama and South Carolina, North Carolina, Tennessee, and so on, um, were usually some of the more well-attended races early in, in NASCAR's history. And so what then happens, I think, is over time you see the, the NASCAR as a corporate entity gets very good at target marketing, um, very, very good at capitalizing upon that market that they've sort of helped co-create with, um, you know, the folks who enjoyed the sport within within that part of the country. And then um, that obviously leads us to an interesting point in their history where by the time we're writing the book, they're trying to attend to the kind of impulses of globalization, global expansion, accumulation, you know, going into China, going into Mexico, going into South America, um, even into Europe and places to try to sell their, their product effectively. And yet at the same time, they have a pretty well-established identity here in North America in terms of um, who, as Mike has described already, who the quote-unquote average NASCAR fan would be, what they would look like, where their politics would lean toward, their sort of faith, and so on. So uh, it was an interesting time for us to be writing this book because NASCAR was really at an impasse where they're trying to at once globalize and at the same time stay true to this um, somewhat, I would say, isolationist uh, um, um, identity they created for themselves as a brand. So when you use the term NASCAR Nation, are you referring to uh, the cultural containment of this group, or is it more about this is a term being used by media and politicians? Uh, um, or what do you mean by NASCAR Nation? I think it could almost go both ways, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> when, when we look at, you know, we hear in sort of a popular press, right, Red Sox Nation, Gator Nation, these sort of very sort of fervent core fan bases of particular teams you know we don't talk about sort of nfl nation or you know baseball nation um so to so to see an entire sport effectively um have have this this title or moniker put to it and and use it itself we've seen 
flags, a picture I don't think we used in the book, I don't think we had a good shot of it, was a, of, a, of a NASCAR Nation flag, whether that was sanctioned by NASCAR or not, we don't really know. But uh, there, there's definitely an idea that there's a collective of, of, of fans that fit a particular demographic. Now, when you kind of think about, well, what are the demographics of NASCAR? If you looked into sort of the marketing literature, the demographic literature, you know, NASCAR counts... I believe 75 million Americans as fans of the sport and has the most, you know, Fortune 500 companies as sponsors and, and things like that. And I think on, on some level, as it's moving through this space, as Josh talked about, of trying to expand into different markets, we see a focus on, for example, uh, outreach in terms of diversity, right? They have the Drive for Diversity program. Mm -hmm. uh, we see folks um, who work in their diversity office and diversity marketing areas who talk about, well, we want to uh, attract more Spanish-speaking fans at, at races in, say, uh, Illinois, the one in, near Chicago. And this, this effort of outreach, well, it, it's sort of, you know, why are they having to do outreach in the first place? Where is that coming from? Well, it's coming from the backlash to the idea that this is a very sort of a white, regionalized sport with a pretty long history and some and some pretty dicey politics when we look at the fans in which they're trying to to reach out to I and mean, we, we we talk in the book about i think we have a we have a chapter on sort of the uh, sort of southern confederate iconicity that goes throughout the sport whether it's a confederate flag or or bumper stickers that that, that talk about immigration and things like that so when we when we're on the ground and this this kind of goes to the idea of why we focused on fans and, mm -hmm. and sort of the way that fans consume NASCAR as opposed to how the sport operated in terms of its, it, you know, marketing practices or how it situates itself uh, in terms of a mediated spaces. Well, who's really consuming this, this sport brand on the ground? And when you're at races, by and large, and sort of the, I think we, the last two that we were at was in uh, Talladega, Alabama and Phoenix, Arizona, um, it's it's very very not diverse, and by that I mean it's very very white. Um, as a, a almost sort of a theater of whiteness, there's a hundred thousand people at the race at Talladega, and there's no diversity whatsoever. Uh, there's diversity on ages certainly, and 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 even, and even sort of class backgrounds, working class, middle class, upper class. It's very diverse in that respect, but in terms of sort of racial and ethnic diversity. Um, there, there, there just isn't any. And I think that's the sort of the space that we tie on to. What does it mean to be in a space of NASCAR? Well, it means to be in a space of a NASCAR race on the ground, whether you're sort of in the parking lot across the street from the venue, camping out, uh, barbecuing or whatnot, or whether you're in a very privileged space on the infield in sort of a very expensive, you know, motor home. And you've got your flat screen TV out there and you're, you're sort of watching college football on a Saturday and NFL on a Sunday and the race is going on around you. And what are these folks really experiencing? And that's something we, you know, you, you can't do from just a media analysis of the way that the race is broadcast or look at their marketing literature. It's how, is, how are these, these folks being uh, produced within that space? So uh, before we go on to talk about methods, I was wondering if we could talk a little bit more about that uh, idea of diversity uh, that you're bringing up. It seems like for the owners... Um, the impetus is quite clear for why they have these campaigns to promote diversity because more fans um, equals more money for them. Um, but what do what do the fans think of these campaigns? Do they resist them? Do they support them? Do they ignore them? Um, did you see anything when you were doing your work? Yeah, yeah, very good question. Um, there was 
a real uproar right at the end of our process, really, probably um, kind of 2008 to 2010, uh, around the initiatives, a lot of the initiatives Mike talked about coming from Drive for Diversity and some of the other, um, uh, they included Juan Ace, who was a, um, a Latin American's uh, popular singer, you know, and some of their commercials and things like that. If you ever went on, if you went onto the fan blogs and message boards and things like that for NASCAR, there was a real um, uh, energy around the idea that NASCAR was selling out, and effectively what that meant was selling mm-hmm. out the history and the, the sort of the branded kind of consumer experience that they had created over time as it articulated around things like, you know, sort of whiteness and um, Southern identities and all that, these kinds of things, that they were selling that out to try to move the, 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 the corporate sort of um, um, imperatives forward, I guess. Um, but it, you even saw it on the ground. We, we ran into so many different T-shirts uh, that folks were wearing that would say, you know, uh, uh, in, you know, learn to speak English or leave the country or um, the reason there are no black driving NASCAR or uh, automobiles are because, and then they would sort of list all these quite racist sort of ideas around why there was no, there was no place for, for um, sort of people of color within NASCAR. So you did see all that. And of course, this doesn't mean that all NASCAR fans are racist or that they're all clinging to the, you know, a white supremacist worldview, but it is obviously significantly more part of the NASCAR experience than you'd ever see. Mm-hmm. in any of its rival professional sports in the North American landscape, for sure. Yeah, I found that really fascinating in your book. Um, in one of your final chapters, it's titled Selling Out NASCAR Nation, and I expected that to mean they were simply trying to become more corporate. Um, if you think your favorite band selling out, it's because they left their indie roots behind and tried to make it big. Um, but in this case, it's not that, because NASCAR already is about as corporate as they come. It's not like it's your mom-and-pop racers. Yeah, well, I think as you probably figured out by now, we like to use terms in two or three different ways. So you're right. We were trying to, in some ways, connect both those things. The idea of betraying a, a well-established fan identity and the sport, the role that sport plays in, in kind of creating and perpetuating those identities. But also, um, you know, the, what you said, um, the other side of that is attending to the corporate model that had been created and, you know, trying to grow their industry. And so selling out on that level as well. And the two, when they sort of were converging, created a number of tensions. And it was funny because you, you'd often hear uh, NASCAR executives really speaking very clearly about sort of free market ideas and the idea, you know, of, of, of a free society, free America, not that different than the political rhetoric we hear today, but um, demands that we do this sort of thing. So, hey, we're sorry if we're turning our back on the heritage and what this sport means to you you as a fan but to question that we're trying to sort of grow this company is actually something that stands in the face of how we see ourselves as an american brand as an american sort of entity in in general which is kind of interesting so with this southern identity was this based on an actual reality or is this uh kind of a, a imaginary history history created for the sake of marketing it to a certain audience i think it's the most telling thing is that the, some of the more southern tracks we went to were not in the south. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, the most Confederate sort of laden tracks that I came across, or emblazoned tracks that I came across, would have been in Phoenix, uh, Dover, uh, you know, in, in some places you wouldn't traditionally associate with yeah. the, the you know, Dixie South. Uh, it doesn't mean that Martinsville isn't still pretty heavily sort of saturated with these types of images and, and whatnot. But go to Charlotte. There's actually a fair bit of diversity in Charlotte um, in mm-hmm. terms of sort of racial and ethnic diversity. And there's not nearly this sort of signification of the South in a place like Charlotte or Atlanta 
um, as you would find in some of the other places. So some levels, I do think part of the consumer experience and the branded consumer experiences is seizing upon sort of Southern signifiers and this iconicity Mike talked about earlier um, to try to, you know, to help create this branded experience for consumers. Which is easier and more powerful once you're actually out of the South. And <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Right. I, I think to, to sort of piggyback onto that, this, well, the, the brand is then becoming uh, a space of performing whiteness. Now, we see it in the South in, a, in a one particular way, but in some of these other sort of, I want to say, non-geographic Southern locations, mm-hmm. uh, where it's perhaps even more prevalent, well, it's who's there to perform a particular kind of whiteness um, folks I sort of know in the ad industry and, and sort of in, in that space, when they would take folks to NASCAR events trying to get them to sponsor things, not, not folks who work directly with NASCAR, but the folks were always, you know, 40, 50-year-old upper-middle-class executives who felt like in that space they could put on a pair of jeans and a T-shirt and drink some cheap beer mm-hmm. and tell racist jokes and, and sort of perform a particular identity that they can't do working on Madison Avenue yeah. or working in, uh, you know, uh, L.A., Chicago or whatnot. So it, the, the consumer experience becomes a, a very sort of bastardized version of sort of Southern identity. And then the two play against each other. Um, on, the, on the point about the diversity and the way it was received, I think sort of after we had completed the book and we had, we had, had some meetings um, with some folks from NASCAR, and the way that they see diversity, at least the people that we, we met with, um, is very much in market terms. It's, well, if we only have, you know, if we increase our, let's say, our Latino fan base from 5 to 10%, that's great for the brand. We're much more diverse in Phoenix or Chicago or whatnot. Um, and we'd say, well, that might get them, you know, they had certain promotions, um, advertising on Spanish-language radio and things like that. And it's like, well, yes, you, you may become more diverse initially. People will come to the events. But if you have people who are coming to the events who are racial and ethnic minorities and they're being faced with people wearing incredibly racist T-shirts about African-Americans and Latinos and yelling racial slurs at the drivers, um, Juan Pablo Montoya being one particular example that we talk about in the book, you know, are they going to come back? And, and they were somewhat stunned by the notion that this is what was going on in their space. Yeah, so, they were, so they were completely unaware of that level of, uh, I guess, overt racism occurring at the races. I don't unaware might be the wrong term, but had understood it differently. Okay, might be, might be a way to put it. Um, you know, we were at a, at one track, um, and the the first thing that we saw, or at least that I saw when I got out of my car, was a giant Confederate flag in the parking lot on somebody's motorhome, not in the track space or anything like that. And NASCAR, I think, is to their credit, has done a very good job of of, of, of moving that outside the track. Mm-hmm. Um, and I sort of mentioned this to one of the people, and they're like, "Well." Yeah, but it's not in the track space. It's like, but it's in the parking lot. Like, <laughs> you know, if that's the first thing, if I'm getting out of my car, whether I'm black, white, Hispanic, or Asian, and the first thing I see is a very large Confederate flag. Yeah, it's um, not very welcoming. <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not welcoming to me. I might enjoy auto racing, but I, I don't know that I want to, I don't want to necessarily experience it in that space. And I think in some of the folks that we talk to, even some of our students in various universities we work to who are black and who are Latino, who say, you know, I like auto racing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have my favorite driver I watch on TV, but there is no way I'm ever going to a racetrack because I was there once and it wasn't a good experience for me. Um, it, it, you kind of they can't solve their problem of diversity with a communication strategy, but to solve it in a systemic order or systemic way, 
is is entirely problematic given the way that they branded their sport. Mm-hmm. Uh, so earlier you began to talk about methods, but I never really gave you a chance to finish. Um, so how did you actually go about doing this research and drawing these conclusions? Mike and I spend quite a bit of time writing about and thinking about research methods or research approaches and, and whatnot. Um, and for both of us, we've written a lot about this. It's important that, that this type of research is done sort of in a co-present way. In other words, that we're there sort of experiencing, smelling, drinking, eating, doing all the things that the folks at a NASCAR race, for example, um, would be doing. Mm-hmm. And so if we're going to sort of try to, I guess, create a representation of the NASCAR fan experience, it was important for us in some ways to become NASCAR fans, or at least um, you know, as, as much as we could in, some, uh, in terms of practice. Um, and so then we had two choices. We could either sort of talk to the folks at NASCAR and try to work our way sort of through the organizational hierarchy um, and, and, and try to make sense of what, what decisions are being made within the organization. How is that being reflected or how is that being sort of lived on the, on the ground? Um, but the problem for us, and this is a problem, um, Jeff McGregor, who wrote a, a, a good book, it's, it's more of a journalistic sort of book, but a good book called Sunday Money about NASCAR a few years ago. Okay. The, the problem he ran into when he was working on a side project, which was, um, he was developing a movie around NASCAR, was um, that if you, to get access through NASCAR means you're going to sort of owe something to NASCAR. And he wrote, <laughs> he writes quite carefully in his book about how, I'll just give you a couple examples because I've got it right here. They were, he wasn't allowed to use the, the term moonshiners um, in his representation of NASCAR. He wasn't. Um, he had to always refer to NASCAR as the number two sport in America when talking about its popularity, and he had to uh, remove shots that included the Confederate flag and um, all these sorts of things. And so, uh, we could either offer a very sterilized and corporately sort of controlled representation of the NASCAR experience if we went that route, or at least that's what we thought, yeah. or we could we could sort of do it on 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 the terms that a fan would sort of would, would engage NASCAR. So we, you know, packed up, we'd camp out, we'd stay at Motel 6s and, mm-hmm. um, you know, share a few beers with folks in the infield, that kind of stuff, eat at, eat at the local uh, IHOP, et cetera, uh, and try to get to, to understand the consumer experience and, and the fan experience um, sort of as a member of that community. Now, obviously, that presented a ton of challenges, and Mike could probably talk about this as well, but because we were there in one way sort of as researchers trying to better understand some of these things but often you know uh, uh, being a part of the spectacle a spectacle we were trying to problematize became um, um, sort of an issue I mean when someone tells a sort of racist joke around a, a bonfire on a Friday night do you as the researcher laugh yeah. and sort of say oh yeah good one and or do you say hold on this is a bit you know this sits outside of my sort of political orientation yeah. And by doing that, sort of compromise your your existence within that space. And so we've both written about that as well. But um, yeah, it was a pretty pretty exciting adventure. <laughs> so yeah, I, how successful uh, was the spectacle? Did it eventually win you over and create new NASCAR fans? Or were you able to resist it? <laughs> I, I would say it really wasn't, at least for me. Um, I think, I, I don't speak for Josh, but I think once we sort of finished the project and kind of let out a sigh of relief that maybe we don't have to go back uh, <laughs> yeah. for a while... It was, you know, as, as he, he mentioned, he grew up in, a, in that space. I grew up in California. I had almost no exposure to NASCAR. The, the Sort of the first race I ever went to was for this project. Um, but in terms of the, the, the sort of the mingling about and experiencing that which you're also problematizing and critiquing at the same time, um, I think the two examples uh, that, we, that we have in the book that are sort of longer, uh, sort of microethnographic, uh, representations of, of the U.S. military marketing pavilion 
mm-hmm. that we sort of walk through as okay, you, you sort of you go and you enter your information and you kind of go to these various different stations. There's you know a, a wall climb, a sort of a physical training station, a flight simulator, a laser tag booth, you know getting not necessarily lost in the moment, but experiencing it as if you were just another fan, mm-hmm. um, chatting with people you're in line with and, and, and saying, okay, this is how I would experience it uncritically as everybody else here probably is. Like, yeah. What would it mean to experience this critically? Um, we, we could certainly just go and ask people, hey, how did, you, how did you feel about going on that flight simulator? How did you feel about, you know, signing up for more information for OTC as they had an ROTC uh, pavilion there as well? Mm-hmm is a lot different methodologically from engaging in that practice yourself. Um, what does it mean to sit through a Bible study at a NASCAR event or a Christian rock concert on a Friday night um, and, and sort of enter, the, enter that space and be present in the text, not only co-present with your, the people that you're researching sort of with and against, but also as your own sort of researcher subjectivity. What does it mean to be in that space? Um, we, we we go and we buy some of these racist T-shirts or T-shirts. I think we would say are pretty racist. Top ten reasons there's no black race car drivers. I think it's a pretty racist T-shirt. We we include a picture yeah. of it in the book. You know, well, we engage in that. Right, we want to have that T-shirt as a sort of a, a sort of a research artifact, a research object. But at the end of the day, we're still paying money to somebody who's selling a racist T-shirt. Yeah. We're never going to wear it, but we're still engaging in it in that practice and. Mm-hmm. As he mentioned with some of the some of the some of the racist jokes, right? The, the moment you stand up and say, "Oh, but wait a second, that's just racist." How could you ever say that? Are we outing ourselves as researchers? Is yeah. that how a typical fan would react? So it enters into all these sort of questions mm-hmm. around um, sort of the ethics of the research act, the politics of the research act, and what does it mean for qualitative researchers more generally to enter into a space not just as a participant observer, obviously we're not driving cars around a racetrack, but as a co-present other in that space, um, I think that is, I think one of the biggest contributions of the book is how do we do this kind of research, uh, whether we're writing on sport or we're writing on anything else as as critical ethnographers. Does this approach differ from uh, current trends in things like sports studies or cultural studies, other areas that might research uh, a phenomena like NASCAR? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I think it does on some levels. Of course, there are lots of what Mike and I have just said, which you'll see sort of in, in, in lots of different um, work in culture studies and sports studies. I think for us, probably maybe the ordering was a little bit different. Uh, we, we, we engaged with, for example, media representations of NASCAR. We spent a lot of time looking on the internet, watching TV, you know, watching races and whatnot to help inform what we were doing on the ground and how we understood what was going on on mm-hmm. the ground. But uh, I think sports studies in particular, and cultural studies more generally, you might say, uh, has, has taken a sort of semiotic, sort of aesthetic turn in many levels. And okay. so a lot of sports studies scholars tend to spend quite a bit of time studying media texts, for example. And so their analysis would start with you know, the beginning of the race and end somewhere near the end of the race. And what, does that, what are the public pedagogies and politics that are at work within this telecast? Okay. Um, and so the assumption there then is... The media text kind of is it, it, it the, the fan encounters a media text in a, a sort of homogenous way or in a predictable way, and, and we have always thought that you can't assume 
that the media representation of something is lived and negotiated in, in, in sort of ways that we were able to predict just by studying one side of that. Yeah. So we wanted to go and, and talk to people and sort of engage with those texts ourselves. And whether we're talking about you know television broadcasts or a, an overhead, a plane flying overhead with a Confederate flag telling uh, you know, what sort of Second Amendment rights um, narratives following it. Um, we wanted to understand how people encounter those, what, how they, what they make of it, how they negotiate it, and so on. And so for us, it was more about living the lived experience as opposed to understanding the lived experience as a discursive formation or as a sort of textual element. And, um, and I think that's probably was, was our goal from the outset, was really to understand if there's a sort of dialectic at work here between sort of sport and society. We wanted to understand how sport was producing society as opposed to just how broader sort of social formations would be um, determining sporting experiences, in this case, sport consumer behavior. So in this case, did you find that the fans were more reflective about their behavior or providing their own interpretations and not just these passive consumers? Or did you find that they were uh, simply taking in the messages from the above? It was messy, uh, much messier than we would have given, I think, than we would have assumed uh, for a lot of reasons. There were things that we kind of suspected were, were there, that were there, um, things that we thought wouldn't have been as politicized as they were, and things that were um, sort of more complicated than we would have assumed. Uh, uh, some example, The main examples for me, and the ones that stick out for me, were uh, around sort of Christian faith. Mm -hmm. And I guess when you tie... NASCAR's history is interesting when you think about faith because historically it was the the sport that the the preachers on Sunday were sort of condemning and um, you know it was the moonshine bootlegging yeah. wild wild men of the South sort of sport and so mm -hmm. it didn't have a very cozy relationship with Christianity and I think in my mind I thought that was still the case maybe entering into this uh, and what I guess I realized and I think Mike probably would agree is over our time. Uh, doing this research, we really came to realize how comfortable folks um, sort of who uh, identify themselves as aligning with the Christian faith are in being in NASCAR spaces and using those spaces to proselytize. Um, you know, I mean, we, we were approached numerous times, usually multiple times at each race, sort of asking us to come to a particular service or to read some uh, materials, things like that. So um, that's just maybe one little example of where our expectations were sort of um, met or weren't met and were in some ways um, what was really going on was quite different than what we would have expected going in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I noticed I noticed in passing a little while ago, Michael mentioned that there was Bible studies. And it's funny for the listener who isn't aware of what happens at NASCAR, that would be completely shocking a thing. But now <laughs> after reading the book or hearing you talk or your experience going there just becomes something that's assumed. And I think that was one of the things we tried to point out in that sort of microethnography that we conclude is it it was very much not out of place um, as we would sort of walk you know encounter at different times in different places folks saying hey do you want to have a bible study hey here's some here's some literature about particular ministry uh, you go to certain sporty events or just different places right and, and things seem very out of place it was very comfortable for the people who were you're giving out this literature or inviting people to participate in, in sort of particular ministries, as well as for the people who were there for the race, it was a very naturalized relationship, um, perhaps more so than I would have expected or expected going into it. So does that mean that they're, uh, the fans are divided and that there's one group that sees NASCAR and religion going hand in hand while the other group celebrates a more rebellious past uh, where they think about bootlegging and activities like that? 
or is it that people can hold these two kind of contradictory ideas in their mind and find some way to just simply make it work and not think about that contradiction? Yeah, I think it's it's the latter, I think, for me. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the perfect, um, we, we, I don't know that any one of us have made sense of it yet, and we've probably talked about it more than, than you'd, you'd imagine, but we, I don't know that uh, there's a certain sort of what you might call paleoconservative um, smoothing going on. What do you mean by paleoconservative? I know that's a term you talk a lot about in the book, but I'm not sure everyone will be familiar with that. Yeah, um, I guess what, so as, as opposed to sort of a neoconservative, or neoconservatism, which I think usually tends to refer to um, United States imperialism, often it's connected to, you know, growing the, the U.S.'s role within the broader geopolitical sort of spectrum. So um, paleoconservative conservatism tends to sort of, um, at least in the literatures we've sort of engaged, um, refer to Christian, white, traditional, um, you know, uh, uh, heteronormative sort of values that are prevalent within a particular, um, you know, part of the country and prevalent throughout most of the United States. And so for us, you're right. There's this this incredible sort of paradox at work there, where you have people sort of, and and again, you can look at some of the other people that have written about this, writing extensively about how people go to NASCAR to have a good time, and on many, many, many levels. Um, but at the same time, Christianity has a very sort of um, unchallenged place within that, and so it's quite common for people to get blitzed on Saturday night, and then wake up Sunday morning, go to the service, and then you know go to the race, and and it's, it's all kind of part of this. Um, good old boys like uh, Jimmy Johnson or um, um, like Junior Johnson, uh, Dale Earnhardt Sr. and so on, are lionized as embodiments of Christianity. Even though in the time in which they were sort of racing, they were kind of seen quite the opposite way by most folks who followed the sport. And so, um, yeah, there's been this sort of smoothing over of some of these tensions around around these things that we wouldn't have thought was there. Um, and I don't know that we've been able to really make full sense of since. So we should probably start to move towards some concluding questions. Uh, and, and the first one I have is that you wrote this book during the heights of the George W. Bush presidency, um, which is something you address in the book. So the question remains, what's going on with the NASCAR nation now? Or even, uh, perhaps more interesting, what's next for the NASCAR nation? Uh, it seems like the, con- the context has changed pretty dramatically. We've seen the second election of Obama. Um, there was even a poll that suggested more fans of NASCAR would vote for Obama than Romney. Um, and maybe that had to do with Romney's rather impressive failure to mobilize NASCAR, the NASCAR nation um, when he stated that he had a lot of great friends who were NASCAR team owners. Um, so clearly failing to uh, properly address the more working class roots of NASCAR. Um, so, so what's next? Well, I think as you acknowledge, right, we wrote this on the ground pretty much between 2006 and at the last event we were at was in, in October, November 2010. And even by the sort of 2010, it, we had seen it move away from at least the events that we attended, this very sort of embodied George Bush presidency, the, the right, he's not president anymore, but there was a very, uh, how, how, do I wanna, how do I wanna phrase this? Uh, when we started the project, sort of Republican politics, uh, on the national stage is very prevalent. But by the, the time that we're sort of ending this project, we've gone more towards, you know, the Second Amendment tent selling T-shirts with, you know, an assault rifle on it. Or the, the race in, in Phoenix in, I guess, November of 2010 uh, around anti-immigration. Or anti-gay rights and gay marriage in 
uh, some parts of, 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 the, of the South. So this, this sort of change away from a very particular identification with a national political party, uh, or at least the Republican Party, towards maybe more around issues. Uh, you know, I, I don't think in, you know, the entire time we were at either of those last two races that any national political figure was even mentioned by name or mm-hmm. talked about. I, we saw one sort of cardboard cutout of Sarah Palin, but that was kind of it. And it was, it was kind of, we weren't really sure if it was a, in a joking manner or a serious manner that we saw it. So there's th- that kind of shift taking place. Um, we see polls that, that show that, you know, uh, the ratings are down, television ratings are down, mm-hmm. attendance is down. Now, is that a function of just a, of a downturn economy? Uh, I think it's probably you know more complex than uh, well the politics have changed so fans aren't aren't supporting it. It's, it's probably a agglomeration of uh, these races are not cheap to attend. Uh, yeah. the, the sort of the spectacle uh, itself shifting and changing. The, the poll that said that NASCAR fans were in favor of Obama. I think we we both sort of the, saw that comment on the on the questions you sent us and said, well, we really want to look at that poll. Yeah, I was curious uh, about that also. <laughs> now, now we have seen uh, in 2009, 2010, uh, President Obama was hosting NASCAR, uh, you know, uh, winners at the White House. Brad Dougherty did an interview with him at the White House and uh, sort of an uh, I don't want to necessarily call it outreach, right? The president hosts all the sort of sports award winners. NHL and MLB and so forth, uh, but it was sort of already kind of outside of this of our time on the ground. Uh, we haven't really returned to that. It'd be interesting to see uh, where that shift is taking place. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's sort of the, the probably one concrete change that we would point to in that space. Uh, Josh might want to talk more about sort of the political economic part of it. Yeah, I was just going to um, uh, sort of close maybe, or at least my part, um, by saying I think it could also sort of be suggestive of sort of cyclicalism within the, the political economic environment. And I guess what I mean by that is, you know, Emmanuel Wallerstein, for example, and lots of folks have written about the idea that sort of we, we're constantly going back and forth between um, a, a more right sort of leaning political system um, you know, where one feature, you know, emphasizing the paleoconservative values I talked about and sort of free markets and things like that. And then something further to the left, which is quite a bit further than we would see in Obama, but still, you know, sort of social welfare and these kinds of things. But I think we've seen politically a turn back toward the left. And if NASCAR was so sort of openly and blatantly aligning itself with the political right to the point where they were holding fundraisers for right-wing um, politicians and they were you know, the right wing politicians were sort of sponsoring cars and all these kinds of things. Um, if there was this um, quite comfortable relationship between a, a certain political orientation and this sport, then in some ways, by being political in, in its its very nature, it's setting itself up for when those politics kind of when, when when groups of people turn away from those politics, they may also turn away from the sport, which most closely captures that. And so. Um, I do agree with Mike. I think it's it's you know it's a sign of the, the economic sort of times as well. But I would say all that going, all that sort of art, the discussions around selling out and all these sort of things come at a moment when the, the the foundations of what the NASCAR brand stood for have been sort of unsettled, both intentionally by NASCAR and by the, the broader political environment that it has aligned itself with, or that it's aligned itself with features of. Um, I think that sort of has a lot to do with NASCAR's current. Sort of, um, yeah, sort of downturn, if you will. 
So that, uh, that actually ties really well into my last question, um, which is kind of the big picture, large claim question. So why should someone interested in understanding politics and the implementation of complicated neoliberal policies or large cultural shifts, um, why would they pay attention to a practice like NASCAR, um, a sporting event where fans, I guess the joke is that fans are driven to heights of passion while watching drivers go in circles at a high speed. Um, why would you pay attention to something like that? That is um, the... Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, um, I think I think it's important for if no other reason than if you sort of are willing to give some credence to or some sort of value to ideas like hegemony and things like that, if you're willing to think culture and pop culture and these kinds of things play an important role in shaping... Uh, and, and sort of in some ways instrumentalizing uh, public opinion and, and sort of values and ideologies and all these kinds of things. Um, and then then surely NASCAR, at least in one particular historical moment, the moment we sort of looked at it, was an incredibly important site for promoting certain ideas and for sort of sharing certain experiences which would reinforce those ideas. Uh, and so uh, it's, the, it's, it's, it's a way of, it's a place where political, cultural, sort of economic currency can be exchanged and developed and in some ways um, certain value systems can be authorized and I think that that's alone uh, much like you look back to the 1930s in Germany or in Italy all the way through you know Spain a few years later on through to sort of the Soviet Union the United States and so on that sports worth thinking about in these in these ways because sport can be incredibly powerful mm-hmm. in in sort of activating and sort of uh, um, developing some of these ideological formations. Right. I think to, to add to that, when we look at sport as a, as a popular formation, as cultural shorthand in, in one sense of looking at it, um, the, the extent to which sport itself tries to depoliticize itself or to police the politicization of sport when an athlete such as Richard Mendenhall or Adrian Peterson speaks out about something political, Charles Woodson with the Packers talking about the, the, the politics of unions in Wisconsin. It's, it's, well, this is just a game and athletes don't have a space in it. Well, that, that, that's sort of one uh, kind of avenue that we point to. But the whole idea that you know, maybe people don't understand religion or they don't understand sort of political politics and don't get caught up in a campaign or ver- are just themselves very non-political. But when it comes to sport, uh, it's something that sort of overgeneralized, but a lot of folks have access to, they can understand, and it's the one space that's often turned to as being not political. I mm-hmm. teach a class in, in a graduate class on sport in the media, and looking at the way in which sport functions around narratives of class, gender, race, and so forth. Um, I have students who, who tell me, master's degree seeking students, like, you've ruined advertising for me, or you've ruined <laughs> film for me, or you've ruined, you know, my, my sort of, I can't look at sport without being somewhat critical of it. And I go, well, I guess I did my job, right? Yeah. Um, like, and just like a good sociologist ruins social life for everyone. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's, it's the one, you know, why, why are they saying that in the first place? They're not saying that about, oh, you've ruined politics for me. I had such a high conception of politics, yeah. but, but now we sort of, I took a poli-sci class and now I hate politics or, or any other, you know, music, religion, you could kind of point to all these things. Yeah. It's the one that's sport that's surprising to sort of unmask these various veils. And we look at some of the research, and, and this is maybe just a plug for some of our colleagues, mm-hmm. um, but some of the research... You know, we, we, we couch, we, we say we're in the sociology of sport, we write from a cultural studies perspective. When we look at the, 
the good work being done in cultural studies is to kind of embodied ethnography uh, that, that takes up the understanding of politics against a background of, of neoliberalism. I work at Samantha King's work on, on breast cancer philanthropy, uh, her book Pink Ribbons Incorporated, which was actually a University of Minnesota publication, just mm -hmm. made into a, a documentary with the Canadian Film Board or Canadian Film Institute. Uh, it's a very powerful film, a very good piece of sort of active cultural studies scholarship. Um, we can look at Holly Thorpe's work on gender and snowboarding culture, Michelle Donnelly's work on roller derby and sort of women, spaces of women onlyness, um, Claudio Morea's work on sort of Brazilian soccer fandom from a from a, an activist intellectual perspective, or mm -hmm. Kyle Bunn's work on sort of water rights in the third world or the global south and how first world consumers or the global north consumers, whether they're, you know, get, get, Absorbed into that space of volume bottled water and marathons and 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 and, and the, the the overt commodification of water. When we look at that work being done in under the banner of cultural studies, uh, I think Josh, I think you probably agree with me. When we look at the folks who are writing about it from a sport or physical cultural studies perspective, that's the kind of work that we that that gets us excited. And I think because it ties into and speaks to something that is so publicly visible mm -hmm. to a great number of people. Uh, you know, nowhere else, I don't, I think we'd be pretty safe of saying, nowhere else can we go to an event of any kind, maybe some big music, you know, uh, festival, and see 100,000 people at a spectacle like a NASCAR race, or even 85,000 people at a, at a college football game, uh, whether it's in the, the, the north or the south of the U.S., performing a particular kind of fandom, a particular kind yeah. of race, class, gender, whiteness, whatever you, you, you want to have. Um, it, it creates a very... Uh, sort of a rich and fertile territory for scholars, um, especially who are willing to get their hands dirty in that particular space and do something with it more than just trying to understand it, but understand it, change it, resist it, contest it, mm -hmm. confront it um, in, in a very sort of public intellectual way. Well, that is a great point to conclude on. So thank you both again for joining us. And to all the listeners, make sure to pick up a copy of Sports Spectacle and NASCAR Nation. Oh, thanks, Scott, okay. for the invitation. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot.